The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Hey, this is DeRay, and welcome to Bossy of the People. In this episode, it's a little different because, as you know, so much is going on in the world that we wanted to make sure that this episode was one where you learned as much new information that could help sort of frame your perspective in this moment, could expose you to new information and research. So we brought on Professor John Rappaport at the University of Chicago Law School to talk about the range of his research that is focused so much on the police and criminal justice. I came across him not too long ago because our work intersected around some police union work And I'm telling you, I learned so much in this conversation. I hope that you can use information from this interview to help shape the way you have conversations and think about solutions as we move forward. Let's go. Professor Rappaport, thanks so much for joining us today on Pod Save the People. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. Now, I'd love to know, you know, I first came across your work because you are in the small set of researchers who study the police. Uh, so I'd love to know, like, what what got you into the world of anything around policing? Was it like your own personal experience with the police, or was it like a TV show, or was it, I don't know, something else? And I'm interested in what does it mean that there's a subset of people like you who are actually law professors and not like I don't know. In my mind, people who do these sort of studies are like full time statisticians. So I'm interested in how a background in law like set you up to do what you've done so well. Well, thank you. Uh, so, look, you know, I was, uh, when I was an undergraduate, I was actually a math major. I thought I was going to go be a, a computer scientist or something like that out in Silicon Valley. But, you know, during those years, that's when I had sort of my political awakening and realized, boy, are there a lot of problems in the world. And, and of course, you know, Silicon Valley can help solve some of those problems, but the ones that were really grabbing me just felt so much more immediate. Um, and it was just, you know, people on the ground, people on the streets. And so that's why I chose to go to law school. When, when I went to law school, I, I thought I was going to be more like a, a civil rights, civil liberties lawyer, ACLU type, something like that. Um, but it was in the first year I took criminal law and I just, I was hooked. And I was hooked, I think, because, you know, the criminal law and the criminal justice system, this is the place where the state most obviously and directly and forcefully interacts with its citizens. I mean, you want to think about the state versus the citizen. You're thinking about a police officer encountering someone on the street. You're thinking about a correctional system locking people up. And it just felt like for people who are interested in studying government, in studying law, this is the crucible. And so I got really into criminal law issues. I took every criminal law class offered at the law school, and I became increasingly interested in policing because, you know, policing is, is the entryway into the entire system. And so that's how I first started thinking about it is, well, if you want to understand how all these people get into the system in the first place, you have to understand how policing works. Over time, that grew into an interest sort of independently about, well, how are the police doing their job and all the sorts of um, harms that police could cause, even when they aren't bringing people into the system. Um, and so that's where my focus has been. And I think early on, 
I realized that despite all that had been written about the police, we really didn't understand very much about why exactly the police behave the way they do. There's a whole bunch of different incentives pulling them in different directions. There's, you know, the risk of criminal liability, the risk of financial liability. There's the influence of unions. There's insurance companies, as I've written about. Um, the internal incentives about being promoted and what gets rewarded when you're a police officer. And I felt like everyone had reform ideas, but we still didn't have a good understanding of all the forces that were at play. And so I thought that this is a good research agenda is to think about what are the main institutions that shape police behavior. You know, the old fashioned scholarship, it was all about the courts. It was about the exclusionary rule and about lawsuits that result in damages awards, but that I wasn't convinced those were really what mattered most. And instead, I've come to think that what matters most is things like internal dynamics and culture within the department and unions and in some cases, insurance companies and, and other sort of institutional forces like this. I think in the world of policing research, you know, there are a lot of great people working in a whole bunch of different fields. So there are criminologists, economists, statisticians, law professors, sociologists, and many others, um, ethnographers. And I think we're all just approaching the problem from different angles. And I'm kind of kumbaya in my attitude about this. I think that's actually a benefit of being a law professor is law schools today are so interdisciplinary. On my faculty, we've got anthropologists and economists and all sorts of different people who do historians, people who do interdisciplinary work. And I'm not, I'm not involved in any turf battles in any territorial wars. Um, I'm happy to work with people with uh, whatever kinds of training, as long as they have a, a toolkit that we can bring to bear to understand these problems. And so I think, you know, what the law professor brings to the table is an understanding of how the justice system works and how arrests become cases and how those are processed and how prosecutors are elected and what their incentives are. Frankly, you know, prosecutors and public defenders, they all are lawyers. So we understand a little bit about their psychology and we understand about the law that regulates police officers and prosecutors and other actors in the system. And so there's a lot that we can't do alone, at least those of us who don't have graduate school training in economics or things like that, but there's also a lot that we bring to these projects, and sometimes we know the right questions to ask. Now, before we jump into some of the police stuff, and I first came around to you because of your study on police unions that completely both changed the way that we all thought about the work and reinforced some beliefs that we thought were true, but like we didn't know. Uh, but I wanted to talk to you, I, you know, there's an interview that you did with the Criminal Justice Policy Program, and the headline of it is Paying to Avoid a Shoplifting Charge about private adjudication schemes. And I was like, since I have him here, can you just explain that to us? Because I literally had never even heard this is like a real thing until you said it. Yeah, so I didn't realize it either. I mean, I was familiar with the idea of diversion programs. So uh, I've actually had friends who have been through them um, where, you know, you're arrested, usually for something fairly minor. You're brought in and they tell you, look, we can either pursue these charges or we can divert you into this alternative program, whether it's drug treatment or, hey, driving school, any program like this. And sometimes those programs that they're diverting you into are actually run by private companies. But the whole thing is running through the court. So I was familiar with all that. Um, but then I came across this example. It was actually a, a law student who sent it to me. There was a Slate article uh, by Leon Nafok that was covering this. And it was covering something I'd never heard of, which was a private company that 
processes the cases from beginning to end, and the police are never involved and the courts are never involved. And the way this works is, you know, let's say you're a big box retailer, like a Walmart or a Best Buy or something like this, and, you know, shoplifting's a problem. You lose a lot of products each month um, to shoplifting, but it's really problematic in a lot of ways to call the police every single time you catch a shoplifter. It might be problematic because it's cumbersome. It takes a lot of time. Maybe you don't want police officers constantly showing up at your store because of the signals that sends to other shoppers. And maybe in some instances, you also think, wow, it's kind of a drastic consequence for this person. Like, no, we don't want you shoplifting stuff from our store, but we also don't want you sucked into the criminal justice system as people became increasingly aware of all that that entailed and the collateral consequences, the lasting consequences of having been arrested um, or prosecuted criminally. And so these companies popped up and they, they approached these big box retailers and they said, look, let's enter into a contract. And when you catch shoplifters, you'll give them the option. Instead of calling the police, you'll call us. And we do uh, sort of an educational program for them. We try to help them understand that, you know, shoplifting is not a victimless crime. It actually hurts all the other consumers by, you know, contributing to the increase in prices. And um, they take this class, they pay a fee to take this class. And if they complete it successfully, then we'll let you know that they did everything they were supposed to do, and you'll drop the matter altogether. It's a little bit like you know, driving school for shoplifters or something. And this is really controversial because a lot of people argued it's, it's basically extortion. It's, you know, give this company $500 or else we'll call the police on you. And there was actually a court in California that ruled, hey, it is extortion. I mean, we, look, we read the extortion statute and this is extortion. But, you know, I thought there was actually a lot more to it. And I had a strong sense that if I were ever caught shoplifting or my kid were ever caught shoplifting, boy, would I be glad to have this alternative, just because I'm so acutely aware of how grave the circumstances can be of having your name anywhere in the criminal justice system. Then when you apply for subsequent employment, you apply for loans, you apply for apartments, you're in there as having a record. Now, I also have the luxury of being able to afford the fee that they were charging or to pay the fee for my kid. Some of the companies did say that they would you know, offer reduced rates or even they called them, and I'm, I'm making big quotes with my fingers, you know, scholarships for people who really couldn't afford it. If that's really true, that helps with a little bit of that problem. But, you know, I, I basically took, you know, six months out of my life to think carefully about these issues. And I think ultimately, if you have a bad reaction to this, what I call, you know, private justice system, it's really a symptom of the public justice system. The only way they can get you to agree to do this private diversion program and pay this money is by making the public justice system so bad that you'll do anything in your power to avoid it. And so, you know, whether or not we want this private system to exist, ultimately that's where I came out. Is This is a signal to us. This is a symptom that shows you just how draconian things have become, that people are clamoring to pay some company 500 bucks just to keep their name out of the, the criminal justice records. Is that widespread or is it like just certain companies use it? Like, were you able to get a sense of scope? Well, I'm not sure where things stand today. It was on the rise. There was a company that I focused on in my writing called Corrective Education Company, and they had contracts with a lot of big retailers. Um, I don't want to slander anyone to the extent that this is seen as slanderous. I do remember Walmart, Bloomingdale's were among them. There were big chain sporting goods stores, other uh, clothing retailers, a lot of stores. 
But when that California court opinion came out um, saying that this was extortion, um, and then the Indiana attorney general decided to go after them, a lot of retailers got scared and they decided that this looked like a lot of bad press. And, you know, I'll be honest with you, a lot of people on the left who follow these issues saw this as a big victory uh, because, you know, they hated the very idea of this. But I don't know, I wasn't so sure. And I remain unsure because now I think there's probably a lot more people who are being arrested for shoplifting um, that wouldn't have if these companies were allowed to do their thing. It is interesting. You think about how privatization just shows up and often, as you said, sort of the allure of it is that it's better than the really bad public option, but we should be fixing the public option so the public option isn't so awful, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I agree with that, but uh, there's a lot of lives being affected while we're working on changing the public option. And so, again, you know, if it were me or my kid, and we're in some 10-year period where we're working on changing the system, and maybe 10 years from now, the consequences of the shoplifting arrest won't be so bad, but If it happens sometime in the next year or two, I'm going to want the private option if it's available. Don't go anywhere. More Pod Save the People is coming. Pod Save the People is brought to you by Factor. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no prep, no mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you always have time to enjoy nutritious, great tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from each week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. You can crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Now, let me tell you all, they sent me the Factor meals, and it is absolutely true. Two minutes, pop it in a microwave, and it literally is restaurant-quality food. So far, my favorites are chicken parmesan. I am a chicken parmesan connoisseur. This stuff is good. It has broccoli and tomatoes, and it is creamy and amazing. Mmm, yum. So easy to throw it in the microwave and have a good meal. I'm saving money. I'm not eating out at restaurants so much. It's healthy. Like, I cannot say more about Factor Meals. So if you want to be down with this, head to factormeals.com slash PSTP50 and use code PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code PSTP50 at factormeals.com slash PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Posse of the People is brought to you by BetterHelp. Now, y'all, the beginning of this year has just been a lot going on, like from work and family and friends and just, you know, the weather's been awful in New York City and Baltimore. There are a lot of stressors happening, big and small, And when we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. 
Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com people today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot people. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. You can live out your MasterChef dream when you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. Can we talk about uh, police union? So that is how we first came across you because we... You know, we maintain the only uh, public database of police union contracts in the country and put out the first analysis at the clause level. Uh, and then we stumbled across your research. Can you talk to us about how you even got to police unions? Like, what was that like? What did you learn? And I'd be interested to know what you've learned since that paper came out. Yeah. So I came into policing research with a sense that we really didn't understand well enough why police officers behave the way they do. You want to change someone's behavior, you got to understand why they're behaving that way. And I read a lot of anecdotal evidence, journalistic accounts, a little bit of qualitative academic work that suggested to me that, you know, police unions were not necessarily a friend of, let's say, the civil rights plaintiff or the, the protester, right? When Laquan McDonald, when the tape came out here in Chicago and the union stepped up and, you know, got the back of Officer Van Dyke, who, who was the one who shot McDonald. And I just thought, frankly, that was really outrageous. And I started to see more and more examples of this, of unions standing behind their officers, not in borderline cases, gray cases, but in really, really egregious cases. And it made me deeply uncomfortable, and it made me really worried about the influence that these unions were having on officers. But I had never seen anything other than these anecdotes, you know? And if you want to make someone look bad, you know, and you have... Google, you can find enough bad things that they've done or said. And so I thought, look, if unions really are a bad influence on cops, as this qualitative evidence makes me think they might be, we should be able to see it in the data, right? Like this should make police behavior worse. If you stand up for your officers, you fight for your officers to have all kinds of procedural protections that shield them from accountability way beyond the protections that we give to criminal suspects, then those things, if they really are as bad as they look, we should be able to see it in the data. And we should be able to see that when you get these rights, you behave worse. And so the challenge, I think, from a social science perspective is finding the right setting in which to study that question. Because if 
you know, your first instinct might be, well, let's just compare unionized agencies to non-unionized agencies and see if the unionized ones have more misconduct. But it's hard because it may be that at time one, there were bad agencies and there were good agencies. And then at time two, all the bad agencies decided, you know, it would be awesome. Let's get unions. And they were the ones that had the solidarity and the power to get unions and the good agencies didn't, right? And so then if you see bad behavior in the bad agencies and good behavior in the good agencies, it's not because of the unionization, right? There's no causation there. So we needed to find some specific setting where we could see a change, a change from having unions to not having unions or vice versa and see before and after. And I was just reading someone else's work about a different topic and they described this change in the law in Florida in 2003 where a Florida Supreme Court decision gave sheriff's deputies in Florida the right to bargain collectively, and they had never had it before. And the even better thing was that city police officers in Florida had the collective bargaining right for a long time. And so in the you know, social science jargon, the police officers could be our control group because nothing's changing for them. And the sheriff's deputies could be our treatment group because before the Florida Supreme Court decision, they have no collective bargaining rights. And then we treat them, we give them the pill. Now they have collective bargaining rights and we can compare their behavior before and after the treatment to the behavior of police officers before and after the treatment, which we would expect not to change at all because the decision shouldn't have affected them. And that is, in fact, what we find. Uh, We found that after sheriff's deputies in Florida were given the right to bargain collectively by the Florida Supreme Court, that misconduct increased by 40%. Now, I should say that the measure we're using of misconduct is only capturing pretty egregious incidents of misconduct. This is not like your run-of-the-mill civilian complaint. This is stuff that has escalated way up the food chain. And so the base rate of misconduct was fairly low, meaning of this sort of egregious type of misconduct within sheriff's offices in Florida, the average each year was fairly low. And so when I talk about a 40% increase, it's, you know, maybe not as huge as it sounds. It's not going from 1,000 per year to 1,400 per year. It's going from one to one and a half of these really egregious incidents. But still, it's, you know, highly statistically significant, and it's a very sturdy result. Do we know anything about the type of misconduct that increases, or is this sort of a, a broader sort of understanding? Yeah, actually we do. So we we went back and forth on this and it's interesting, you know, uh, these papers take a long time to develop. And the first time we ran the analysis, we just had all of these incidents of misconduct. And then people said, well, you found an increase, but, you know, maybe it's just kind of ticky-tack stuff that people don't really care about um, that's increasing. You know, what people really care about is violence. And so then we said, you know, we were persuaded of that. And so we said, I think the right dependent variable, the right thing to measure is actually violent misconduct. And so we were able to isolate the incidents involving violence. And that, in the paper we have, that's our dependent variable. That's our outcome we measure. And so when I say there's a 40% increase in these serious incidents of misconduct, I'm talking about incidents involving violence. That's wild. That the before and after of no union union is an increase in violence. Was there research like this done before you, or has somebody done this with a different, like a not Florida place after you? Yeah, so ours was the first paper. Um, The reason we were so motivated to do it is that we had a strong intuition from all the journalism and the qualitative evidence that we had read that this was 
a big factor, but no one had ever attempted to quantify it, and, and ours was the first. Since then, I've seen a couple of other papers in progress. There's no published work yet, but there are a couple of other papers in progress, and there's one in particular that's been uh, getting some attention on Twitter. Uh, and, you know, I apologize because I've never met the man. I'm not sure I'm pronouncing his name right, but the, it's an economist um, in Canada named Rob Gillizo. He has a paper in progress where he's studying nationally. He looks at the rollout of collective bargaining rights over a long period of time, many decades, and then he's measuring the effects on officer-involved killings uh, of civilians. And his preliminary results, again, there's no actual paper, he's just been tweeting about it, but it sounds really interesting. His preliminary finding is that killings went up and they went up almost entirely involving black civilians. The most obvious interpretation of this would be it sort of insulated officers from accountability, and the result was that they killed black people more often. Now, I haven't seen the paper. Um, I can't stand behind the analysis, but Rob seems like a smart and a stand-up guy, and so I expect that the results probably will hold up. Um, so I would definitely keep an eye out for that coming down the pike. And that is, it's a, it's a very different kind of study. It's a national study. You know, the data on police killings, as you all know, hasn't always been reliable. Um, that's part of why you guys, you know, did the mapping police violence project that you did. And so I'll be curious to see how they deal with that in the paper. If you're using police killings as your outcome that you're measuring and you're going back decades, how are you dealing with that problem? But again, um, it seems like there's a lot of promise in this project and we should all keep an eye out for it. If you did a take two of your study, is there anything you would add on now? Or like, would there be like another, I don't know, like given what you know now that you might not have known before. And then given that you know our data, like you know that we have the contracts, they're public, we've analyzed them at the clause level in a way that didn't exist before. Like as a researcher, what could we, I mean, I'm not a researcher, obviously, but what could we do with that data that we probably haven't thought through yet or that like you knowing it exists, you're like, oh, these are some questions that I would be able to use this data to potentially respond to. Yeah, so I'm not sure that I would do anything different about our study. And that's not to say our study is perfect, but we have been anything but hasty. Uh, so this paper has been in the works for like three or four years. And we've actually run some analyses that, you know, ended up getting cut for space or because the, the results were too noisy, meaning we just couldn't really interpret them in, in any direction. And sometimes that's because you don't have enough data in your data set. Um, we would have loved to test for um, the effect on other outcomes beside these violent misconduct incidents that we measured, but we just didn't have good enough data. For us non-data people, what does it mean, test for other outcomes? Okay, so I said that we find um, that when you give these sheriff's deputies collective bargaining rights, the incidents of violent misconduct go up. But I would also like to know, what about the number of times they fire their guns, the number of shootings, domestic violence rates, other outcomes that we care about? Did those also change after they got collective bargaining rights? Often you, you choose the outcome that you're measuring, unfortunately, because of what data are available. You're like, well, what I'd really want to know is the effect on X, but I only have data on Y, so I guess I'll write a paper about the effect of the policy on outcome Y. It's not like these incidents of violent misconduct are the only thing we should be interested in. It's a thing of great interest, and it's something we were able to measure. But I do hope that other people find ways to run similar studies you know, in different states with different scenarios, because 
while we don't see any particular reason to think that Florida is exceptional, and at least it has the benefit of being a big state with a lot of diversity, meaning urban-rural diversity, ethnic and racial diversity. So it, it seems like somewhat representative in that sense. It still could be that when you do a study like this with another state, it works differently. Every state has different sort of labor law history. And the unions might have different effects in different states. I think using your data set, the big question that I would want to know is this. How do the actual contents of the collective bargaining agreements relate to these outcomes we care about, like violent misconduct or killings? What we're studying is the effect of giving sheriff's deputies the right to bargain collectively. Now, when you give sheriff's deputies the right to bargain collectively, a lot of them go use that right to bargain collectively, and they enter into collective bargaining agreements with the sheriff. But not all of them do. And one thing we talk about in the paper is this idea of bargaining in the shadow of collective bargaining rights. So the idea here is that when the Florida Supreme Court says that now all deputy sheriffs in the state of Florida can form unions and can bargain collectively if they want to, what's going to happen in some agencies is they're going to say, hey, boss, here's what we demand. And the boss is going to say no. And they say, okay, well, if you say no, we're going to form a union and we're going to bargain with you and you're going to have to give it to us in a collective bargaining agreement. And then, the, and then the boss says, okay, I'll just give it to you. So you might see agencies where the officers actually have the same rights as the agencies that are unionized without actually needing to unionize. They just threaten to unionize. And that was enough. What I would love to study is the relationship between, you know, the actual terms of the collective bargaining agreements, the type of stuff that you guys coded, right? Does it have this procedural protection or that procedural protection that makes it more difficult to hold officers accountable and do contracts that have, you know, more of those provisions um, lead to worse outcomes or relate to worse outcomes. Now, here's going to be a difficulty, though. The reason that we stayed in Florida is that Florida had really good statewide data on an outcome that we cared about, which was these violent misconduct incidents. When you expand out to a national data set, what's your outcome going to be? It's got to be an outcome for which you have data nationwide. And the only one that I can think of offhand that's reliable would be killings. But killings are fairly rare. What I mean to say is they're not rare enough in a sort of everyday sense, but in a data science sense, they are rare, rarer than, for example, people crossing the street, right? There's things that are, have millions and millions of observations. And when we talk about police killings, we're talking about thousands and thousands of observations. And that makes it more difficult to pull off these kinds of studies. And the data, um, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, it's really good for the last five years or so, but it's not as good before that. And ideally, you'd be finding examples where agencies are changing their collective bargaining agreements. And you can look at the number of killings in those agencies before and after they change their collective bargaining agreements. So before and after they make changes that make it more difficult to hold officers accountable, does that increase the number of killings? And then you'd look at that for every single agency in your data set. We can talk about it more offline. It, it, there are challenges here, but that would be the basic idea. And I think a lot of people would be really interested in a study like that. Now let's talk about insurance. A lot of people, you know, this is actually something that when we first did the 
police union project, Sam was really intense about tracking who paid for misconduct and how that worked and da da. And like, I'll be honest, is that back then I didn't really understand it. I think we do track it, uh, and that was sold. That was like Sam's push. But I feel like I'm still learning about it. And since you are an expert, can you help us understand there is a conversation that has been bubbling up more and more about potentially changing the relationship between misconduct payouts or like insurance and the police? And is that a lever? Can you, so can you start at like the 50,000 feet and then sort of keep zooming in for us? So those of us who don't study this every day, but care can understand? Yeah, sure. Okay. So imagine an officer in your community kill somebody. And it seems like it was probably not justified. Okay. One thing, you know, we can investigate the officer internally. Maybe we can try to get the prosecutor to prosecute him, although that very rarely happens. Um, but another thing we can do is, is we can sue him. Okay. So usually the family of uh, the person who was killed by the police will file a lawsuit and they'll say, you violated the rights of our family member when you shot him and it wasn't justified. And if you win one of these cases, or you win a good settlement, it could be millions of dollars. Okay, so this is, a, this is a big lawsuit for a city. Now, if you win this lawsuit, then what happens? Who pays? Okay, when you file the lawsuit, it will actually look as though you are suing the police officer himself. All right, it'll be named, you know, John Rappaport versus DeRay McKesson. Okay, but in reality, that officer is never going to pay that judgment. Joanna Schwartz, a law professor at UCLA, has the canonical article on this. She finds that police officers pay the judgments and settlements, you know, way less than 1% of the time. Basically never happens. The city or some unit in the city has agreed to indemnify the officer, meaning we'll pay the judgment against you. You were out there working for us. If you get sued and they say you have to pay a million dollars, we'll pay it. Now, how is that going to change anything, right? The city pays. Well, you'd like the world to be like this. You'd like the mayor or the city manager or the treasurer to be really pissed that the city just had to pay a million dollars because of something this officer did. And you'd like that person to turn around and call the police chief and say, you can't keep doing this to us. This is killing us financially, okay? And you've got to stop the officers from causing these kinds of harms and hurting people. It's money that we don't have, okay? And then the chief turns around and does whatever chiefs can do to try to improve the officer's behavior. It, it relies on this whole sort of chain of incentives, right? The city pays, and then the city treasurer tells the chief, and then the chief tells the supervisors, and the supervisors tell the rank-and-file officers to shape up. And if that doesn't happen, if instead the treasurer says, oh, I just wrote a check for a million dollars, but who cares? It's not my million dollars. It's not coming out of my pocket. I'm still making the same salary, right? It falls on the taxpayers and the voters, right? It's ultimately, where did that million dollars come from? It came from taxpayers. At the end of the day, that is who is paying this million dollars. The taxpayers are paying this million dollars. And typically, it's been difficult to get taxpayers to care because a million dollars sounds like a lot, but if you live in a city like Chicago with millions of people, it's just not that much money per person. Not to mention they don't actually know about it. They don't even know this is happening. They don't understand that they're paying tax dollars to support this. This is the first important point, is that people need to understand when they're talking about, we got to make the city pay, they're talking about making the taxpayers pay. And that's fine, and that's great, but that's only going to change things if making the taxpayers pay gets the taxpayers pissed off enough 
that they put enough pressure on the politicians who put enough pressure on the police leaders to change things. Now, all of that is before these insurance companies come into the picture. Most cities in the country, they buy liability insurance, okay, because they know we've got cops walking around on the street with guns. They could kill people. If they kill people, it could be millions of dollars. Our city is not New York City. Our city is not Chicago. That would really hurt us. You know, that would be 10% of our entire annual budget if we had to pay out one of these judgments. We can't afford that. So we're going to do what people do when they know that they might get hit with payments that they can't make, is they buy insurance. So they go to an insurance company and they buy an insurance policy, just like we buy car insurance. And now you've got a situation where they know, okay, if we shoot and kill somebody and it's a million dollars, the insurance company is going to pay. And so your first thought, I think the natural first thought is that sounds like a terrible idea. Um, Because if officers are walking around knowing not only will I not personally pay, but even the city won't have to pay. So no one's even going to get pissed at me because uh, it's really just the insurance company paying that they're going to be more likely to pull the trigger, right? That's called moral hazard in insurance speak. The idea that when you give someone liability coverage, then they don't act as carefully because they know they won't have to pay for the consequences. But that's just the beginning because now you've got an insurance company and the insurance company is saying, boy, if officers in this city shoot people, we're going to lose a lot of money. So we don't want officers in this city to shoot people. So what can we do about it? And they engage in what, you know, in the industry they call loss prevention or risk management. This is basically just, you know, a fancy way of saying what steps can we take to try to prevent the police from killing people? Because it's, it's, frankly, it's bad for our bottom line. And that's not to say these people don't have a heart and that they, they don't want to see fewer police killings for other reasons. I don't mean to imply that. But I just mean within the sort of economic model here, they say that's bad for business. It's bad for the bottom line. Okay? And so they then form a relationship with the police department and they try to work with the police department to reduce the risk that that kind of thing occurs. And I've written a lot about all the different ways they do this. And I I won't go into great detail now, but I'll just say they do a lot to support the training efforts of police departments, educational efforts, make sure that the officers are being well-trained on good use of force policies. They'll change the premiums to reflect the risk. So if a city's officers are going out there and hurting lots of people, the insurer is going to call up the city manager or the chief and say, hey, we're raising your premiums. You guys are out of control. And worse yet, if you don't get things under control, we may just cut you off. And then we're back to square one where the city's sitting there saying, how are we ever going to pay for a million dollar judgment if we don't have insurance? So they're very motivated to keep their insurance coverage. And if their insurer is telling them, you better do X, Y, and Z or else we'll cut your coverage, that's a real threat. And that's something that the city is going to respond to. Last thing I'll say, is that it's very important to understand that as things stand right now, the biggest cities in the country, the ones that we talk about all the time when we talk about policing, they don't buy this kind of insurance because they're so rich that they don't need to. They have such a huge tax base. They have so many residents, so many taxpayers, that their budgets are just enormous. And so a million dollars here or there isn't as big of a deal as it might be for you know, a 20,000-person town. And so they do what we call self-insure, which basically just means they pay for it as they go. And they don't have these insurance companies looking over their shoulder. I didn't know about this insurance. I did read something that somebody was like, Wall Street is helping with the insurance to cover police misconduct. Is that related to this? That like, is Wall Street backing some of these? Or am I like completely in left field? Is this the stuff about police brutality bonds? Yes. That's a little different. So this brings us back to the example of, okay, you've got a city 
doesn't have insurance. It's a small city, let's say 25,000 people, doesn't have insurance. They don't think they need it or they don't want to pay for it or whatever it is. They're just not thinking about it. They get hit with a, a million, $2 million judgment. Now they're kind of screwed financially. So what do they do? They've got a couple choices. One is they can turn around and they can raise everyone's taxes. And there's an example about this uh, from the, the town of Inkster, Michigan, which is not far from where I grew up, where they literally turned around and they raised everyone's property taxes by a couple hundred dollars. And this was not a well-off community. And people were pissed. You know, a couple hundred dollars overnight made a big difference to people. And that made people really wake up and think, what, what the hell is going on? And realize, like, we're paying for this police misconduct. But there are other ways to deal with it. If you don't want to turn around and raise everyone's property taxes, maybe what you do is you sell bonds. You say, well, it's, it's the same as like, oh, well, we need to build a bridge, but we don't have enough money. You know, we could either raise everyone's taxes or we could borrow the money. We could issue bonds, which is basically a way of borrowing money. And so cities will borrow money. They will issue specific bonds to raise the money to pay this million-dollar judgment because one of their officers shot somebody. And then what they're doing is they're actually increasing the overall cost because now they're paying interest on these bonds. And so in the end of the day, the city is going to pay much more than a million dollars. They're going to pay million-plus lots of interest. And that's the mechanism that people are calling police brutality bonds. A very critical way to frame it would be, you know, it's a mechanism that really allows the cities to hide the costs, right? Because instead of doing what Inkster did and saying, look, everyone's got to chip in 250 bucks to cover this judgment, they're making it invisible. They're, they're kicking the can down the road, right? They're saying, we'll just issue some bonds, we'll pay the million dollars, and we'll be making payments on these bonds for the next 30 years or whatever. And no one's really going to notice it. And I think that's why people are, are being really critical of it. Okay, last question. Can you talk about the wandering officer? Yeah. Okay, so I wrote this paper recently with another law professor at Duke Law School named Ben Grunwald, and it's called The Wandering Officer, and basically what it's about is cops who are fired, often for serious misconduct, by one agency, and then they just go to another town nearby and they get another job, and they're back on the street. And the most, I think, famous example of this, and the one that we use at the beginning of the paper, is uh, Timothy Lohman, the officer who shot and killed Tamir Rice. He had been let go by another agency because they said he was not stable. He was not able to handle the pressures of policing. And then Cleveland hired him, and they didn't even do a thorough background check. And not only that, but he was actually going to get hired by another agency after he killed Tamir Rice, although there was sort of an uproar and uh, that ended up falling apart. But he was set up to get a third uh, law enforcement job after killing Tamir Rice the way he did. So this is the problem of the wandering officer. Why are these officers bouncing around? And this is another example of something that I had been reading about in the newspapers. And when you read about it, you're just like, what is wrong with these people? Why would you ever hire an officer that just got fired by another agency? But then I started thinking about it. You know, I put my academic hat on and I started thinking about it. And I said, well, okay, we don't really know whether this is a problem or not. And here's why. When all you do is read the stories about the guys who got fired from another agency, got rehired, and then they hurt somebody, it seems crazy, right? But we also read lots of stories about officers who never got fired before and hurt somebody. And so we don't actually know, just from reading these news stories, as shocking as they are, we don't actually know whether the wandering officers are going to behave any worse in aggregate. The fact that you can find me some examples of ones who behave badly and who hurt people, it doesn't mean that they're going to behave worse as a group. 
it's just the stories, you know, that are available to us. And in fact, you could hypothesize that they might actually behave better, right? It's like getting fired that first time was the wake-up call. It was the message. You're not invincible. You're going to get fired if you do this kind of thing. And so the second time around, I'm going to be more careful. And so Ben and I really wanted to try to study this in a quantitative fashion and figure out, are these stories, you know, really, really exceptional, really rare, or is this a common thing? And do these officers actually behave worse than other officers who have never been fired before? And we use data from Florida, again, because Florida is the sunshine state, and they have really good public records laws, and they keep really good records on policing. And we're able to learn the employment history of every law enforcement officer in the state of Florida going back several decades. And so we can see when officers are fired and then get another job. And what we found is that over the past 30 years or so, at any given time, there were about 1,000 or 1,100 police officers walking the streets in Florida who had previously been fired. And if you multiply that by, you know, the number of interactions that each of those police officers has with civilians in the course of a year, that's a lot. That's about 3% of all officers uh, in the state of Florida have previously been fired. And then we're able to test, well, how do those officers behave as a class, as a group, compared to, let's say, brand new officers, rookies, who are in their first job, and also compared to officers who have moved agencies, but not because they were fired. And we find that they behave worse. Um, They're about 50% more likely to get fired again, and they're about 50% more likely to commit what are called moral character violations in Florida. These are basically serious incidents of misconduct. And so we think it probably is a mistake in most cases to hire a wandering officer. Maybe not every case. Maybe sometimes you have enough information about the person to know this guy's going to, you know, respond the right way. This guy's going to try to get it right the second time. But, you know, absent more information like that, you should consider this to be a really serious risk factor when you're deciding whether to hire somebody. Now, let me just add one last thought, which is that we talk in the paper about, well, why are agencies doing this? Why are they hiring these guys? And I think there's a couple different reasons. Sometimes I think they just don't do background checks. They're required by law to do background checks, um, but they don't always do them, either because they don't care or because they are spread too thin or whatever. Sometimes, you know, they do the background checks, but maybe they hadn't realized because they hadn't read our paper yet what a risk factor this was and how this is a red flag, right? But sometimes what might be happening is that the wandering officer is actually still the best choice. And I think this would be the most plausible story in like rural agencies, really small towns that are not considered especially desirable places to live, that maybe are paying low salaries. They just don't attract a lot of talent to apply to be a police officer. And so it may well be that this wandering officer they hired, this guy who was fired before, is the best choice for them. Now, we do a little bit of work in the paper to try to figure this out. What we do is we, we compare the wandering officers to other officers who were hired around the same time, around the same place. So they're kind of like officers who seem like they were on the job market at around the same time as the wandering officer. And we find that the wandering officers still behave worse, although the gap shrinks. So this implies that this story of, you know, the wandering officer being the best choice it's probably true some of the time, but certainly not all of the time. This should connect up to another issue you might hear people talking about, which is the National Decertification Index or this whole issue of police certification. And, and it connects in this way. Law enforcement is a, is a licensed profession. You need a license 
to be a law enforcement officer the same way you do need a license to be a certified public accountant or a financial advisor or a cosmetologist. There's a licensing board. And if the licensing board pulls your license, you cannot practice your profession in that state. So licensing has an obvious interaction with these wandering officers, because if a wandering officer is not only fired, but he's decertified, his license is taken from him, then he can't get a job at another agency two towns over. He's not allowed to work. What he could do, in theory, is he could cross over the border from Florida to Georgia and apply for a license in Georgia, and he might get it. And so what, you, what becomes important uh, is a database that Georgia can query and can learn that this guy used to be a cop in Florida but was decertified. And right now, you know, we have something that purports to do this, but it is, it's hollow. It's just, you know, I don't know, maybe Swiss cheese is the better analogy. It's, it's like a piece of Swiss cheese. It's just tons of holes in it. Some states don't report. Um, and so we really don't have a good functional database that allows agencies in one state to learn about the history, employment history of an officer in another state, and in particular to learn whether that officer was decertified. And so I think this really needs to be a bigger part of the conversation, this idea of certifying officers. I think people should be encouraging these licensing agencies to step up more. Most of them are pretty passive. They very rarely decertify officers. And they could be doing a lot to protect communities from these officers who are wandering from agency to agency by being a little bit more aggressive, a little bit more assertive, and more willing to delicense officers who are causing serious harm. Boom. Well, thanks so much for joining us today on Pod Save the People. We consider you a friend of the pie. Can't wait to see what you do next in the research world. Uh, and one of the reasons I wanted to bring you on in this moment is uh, that people are hungry for information. We talk about the police a lot on the pod. Uh, we don't always have experts want to talk about their research. So I appreciate you coming on. Yeah, I really appreciate the opportunity to talk to this uh, a broader audience about this research. I hope people will um, keep trying to learn more. Cool. Thanks so much, uh, Professor Rappaport, and we will see you online. Well, that's it. Thanks so much for tuning in to Pod Save the People this week. Tell your friends to check it out. Make sure to rate it wherever you get your podcasts, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else. And we'll see you next week. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. You can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that.